Well, as you know, we are in the middle of a series on uh, seeing Christ in the Old Testament. The title of the series is very simply Christ in the Old Testament. And really the function of this series is to help us understand how to read the Bible. Um, and it's kind of my bold claim that if you don't see Christ every time you read the scriptures, then you are, um, you're missing the point. And I want to say that humbly, but I want to say that firmly, that Jesus makes the claim that all of the scriptures speak of him. And so if we don't find Jesus in the Old Testament, we're, uh, we're going we're gonna to be unaided in our, um, just in our Bible reading, what, what, most, what most people in the church today talk about devotional reading. They talk about the idea of being able to read and, and you know, there's this notion of a quiet time. Well, if you, if you don't have any, any way to worship the Lord or thank the Lord for what he's done in the Old Testament, that is, if you don't understand the Old Testament, then you're not going to read much there. But also, it's, it's my opinion that if you can't understand the Old Testament, then you won't understand the New Testament. That is, the New Testament is primarily an explanation and an unfolding of what's going on in the Old Testament. And so with with that, uh, that's kind of the purpose of this series. Two weeks ago, we looked at Adam and how Adam was a foretype a or a, a foreshadowing of Christ. And we started to look at this idea of of this, this, this concept called types or symbols. That is a literary device that talks about something before it actually shows up. And we, we looked at the example how in a murder mystery you might see that, you know, there's uh, footprints in the garden outside the murder scene, and then that connects later two or three chapters, and when, you know, Miss Maybe has, you know, mud on her boots or something like that. There are elements throughout the scriptures, and all the time, there are little signs, literary devices that point forward to something happening that hasn't taken place yet. And so we started looking at how Adam is a type or a foreshadowing forward to Christ. That is, he, there are elements about the story that Adam is unfold, that's unfolded in Adam. And in that story, we then find its fulfillment totally in Christ. And so we've been, uh, we've been looking at Adam. And then last week, we looked at Noah. And we saw how Noah was really pointing forward to Christ as well. And so we arrive at Abraham the next in the line of, of covenant uh, fathers or what you might think of as covenant patriarchs in the Old Testament. And here we have this story. But before we get into the story, there's three things. We've, we've been talking about this idea of covenant theology and redemption, imago Dei, that is God made man in his image. We're not going to look at all of those today, but we are going to look at some. And the first before we get really into this story and what it says about God, we're, we're going to look at three things. The first thing is this idea of covenant theology. God relates to man through covenant. God has determined to interact with mankind through prescribed ways. God is not flippant and he's not momentary. He doesn't change from day to day. And he has chosen to reveal himself to man and he's done so through covenants. And one of the main things that this story brings out is that God actually has made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham did not come to God. Although many scholars might argue that Abraham was a covenant believer at the time that he heard God's voice, which I would 
probably agree with. He, he still did not approach God. God approached him. And this is the same way that the gospel comes to us. We do not go seeking God. God comes, sends his gospel by his church and by his apostles through the world to come and preach to sinners. And so we are, are just in the same way as Abraham. God came and made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham did not come up to God and and it does not read in Genesis 12 that and God and Abraham said to God, God, where are you? And God said, here I am. It's actually the opposite. God called to Abraham and Abraham responded, here I am. And this is the way that the gospel works. Um, the next element that this story really highlights, and we've been noting it before a few times, is this idea of the goodness of God. Last week, we called it this idea of of. Uh, the covenant of redemption. That is, God really loves the earth. God really wants his creation back. And so, while there was a fall and while man has become sinful, God still wants to redeem the, the creation. And so, we looked at how in the, in the judgments that God brought through Noah, that they were actually redemptive judgments. That is, God wanted to do something good, but in his wanting to do something good, he had to remove the old. And here in this story, God, God begins to bring out this, this part of the covenant that he made with Adam, the covenant that he made with Noah, this covenant that's been unfolding, never changing, but rather just getting bigger and more clear. And he unfolds this element that God is going to completely restore the creation and, and redeem it from the effects of the fall. And the real, real key verse or real key phrase in this passage today in this account of Abraham is this phrase, all nations will be blessed through Abraham and through his seed. We're going to look at what that means. Um, and then finally, the gospel. We, uh, we've been talking about the need to re-examine the gospel for many, many years. And um, in our preaching and in our teaching, we want to really highlight and make clear what the gospel is. And so we're going to look at that today. The gospel is not primarily or even mainly in the New Testament. It's actually the case that the Old Testament lays the foundation for and preaches the gospel beforehand. And we're going to see that here in a minute. But Abraham believes God's promises. And these promises are amazing promises. When you, when you hear what happened, I mean, Abraham is living, you know, uh, a thousand or so, you know, however many years after the creation of the world. There's this big giant flood. Lots of death spreads everywhere. Tribes go scattering. The Tower of Babel. I mean, it's a crazy scene. And in the midst of that, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, no matter what you see around this earth, no matter what you think about your, fa about your family line and about your house, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. That's a pretty amazing promise when you consider what had just taken place. Noah was just a you know a few generations back, and God had just redemptively removed evil off of the earth, and then even after that, just a few years down the road, and it's all back into societal chaos again. And Abraham hears this, and he responds in faith, and God credits him to him in righteousness. And here I want to really, I just want to clearly explain what I mean by the gospel. And we're going to do, we're actually going to have Paul do that for us. Paul writing in Galatians 3, verses 5 through 14. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen as I, um, I'm going to read and I'm going to comment as we go along. Paul is, is talking to the Galatians who had fallen into this error 
that they needed to perfect themselves by the doing of the law. That is, they had heard the message of the gospel, that is, Jesus Christ died on a cross as a substitution in their place, and they had gone back to attempting to fulfill the works of the law on their own. Not through trusting Christ, but rather through circumcision and abstaining from certain types of food. And Paul says to them that they've completely been deceived. That even though they started off well in the gospel, they've been totally confused as to what's going on with the message of the gospel. That is, the the law that that the the system of requirements that they were to follow, that system has been done away with in terms of it bringing about righteousness. And so, so Paul actually makes it perfectly clear here that Abraham heard the gospel beforehand. And so this is the gospel, but it's also really backing up my claim that the Old Testament is just as much filled with the gospel as the New Testament. But it takes trained eyes and the function of the Holy Spirit to highlight where it is. So without further ado, Paul picks up in Galatians 3 verses, verse 5. So then does he, that is God, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That is, the Judaizers, those who were coming in and saying they needed to be circumcised in order to be right with God, they needed to abstain from certain foods to be right with God, Paul is saying that those aren't the children of Abraham. The children of Abraham are those who hear God's word and respond in faith. Verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. This is where I'm backing up my claim that God is a good God and he only does good things because this is what, in verse 8, Paul says the gospel is, all nations blessed. That really conflicts with a lot of modern opinions about the end of the world. In verse 9, he continues, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many are are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That is, Paul's saying, if you're going to keep the law, you have to keep it entirely perfectly. And if you don't break, if you break even one law, you are guilty of the entire law. Verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law, before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul's saying it's impossible to actually do the law completely. That is, all sinful men are are already condemned and they can't go back and un unperform that the, the failure to perform the law. Verse twelve, however, the law is not of faith, on the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And then here's really the clear picture of the gospel that that Paul ties in verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that he would receive the promise of the spirit so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. It's my opinion that if the gospel is too hard to be 
understood by an eight-year-old, then your presentation of the gospel is wrong. And I want to just say, here's, here's what the gospel is in its most simple form. You hear God's word. That is, you come to some understanding of the work of Christ on the cross in your place, on your behalf. You hear what God has done and you, you respond in faith. That is, you turn from sin by his help, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you turn from sin and turn towards God. And in so, in that action, God counts you as righteous. That's the gospel. And it's, a, it's an amazing claim. Just as amazing as Abraham hearing that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in the midst of a culture that was filled with murder, violence, and idolatry. It's just a, it takes just as much faith for Abraham to respond as it does for you to respond. And so, God creates a clean heart in you and puts his law and, it, and his spirit in you, and that, that's the element of the gospel. Or those are the elements of the gospel. And so, with that understanding, it's helpful f- for that to take place, for, for, for you to come to an understanding of what the gospel is so that you can see it in this story with Abraham and Isaac. We're not going to look at all of the parts that we read in Genesis in case you want to be flipping through those parts, we're only going to be in Genesis 22. Um, but here's where we dive into the story. So there's three things I want to look at in this story as we kind of step through. First thing is Isaac being a foreshadowing or a type of Christ. That is, Isaac, there's, there's elements, there's things about Isaac in this story, the way it's written and the way that it happened, that, that point to what Jesus did for us. Um, I want to answer the question of why wasn't Isaac sacrificed? Because if you're not, if you're not familiar with the, the way that the Bible talks or the way that it communicates, you might think God's really into human sacrifice and, or maybe he's not, or maybe he changed his mind. Um, we're going to look at why Isaac wasn't sacrificed. That is, if he was a type of Christ, he wasn't enough of a type of Christ to, to actually accomplish the atonement. And then finally, we're going to look at what the significance is of both the mountain, that is, that all this stuff took place on a mountain, and the lamb. So Isaac is, first of all, Abraham's only son. In Genesis 22.2, it's Abraham is uh, spoken to by God, and he says, Abraham, take your only son, Isaac. Just in that manner, Jesus Christ is the only son of God. In John 1, 14, we hear that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. And Jesus is also referred to in Psalm 2, David hearing beforehand when the Lord says to him, my son. And finally, in 2 Samuel seven fourteen, as re-mentioned in Hebrews, that uh, he would be a son to his father. That is, Isaac was Abraham's only son, but in like manner, this points forward to the only son, Jesus. Isaac was also not, the, not only the only son, but he was also the son whom he loved. This is clear biblical language for pointing forward to Christ. Jesus Christ is the beloved of the Father, and by that we mean that God doesn't have uh, any animosity. There's, no, there's absolutely no uh, un. Uh, unfriendliness or dis- disfellowship between Jesus and the Father. Jesus and the Father lived for all eternity past without spot or blemish in their relationship with perfect joy and perfect fellowship. 
In Matthew 3:17, when Jesus is baptized, there's a voice that comes and announces to the crowds that this is this this one is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's not just a kind of casual relationship. The father says he's well pleased in in the person of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1.13, describing how God has redeemed us out of the dominion of darkness, it says it transferred us into from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. And that phrase, the son of his love, is explicit biblical language to, to talk about Jesus in this way. In Proverbs 8.30, beforehand, Solomon sees wisdom, per, the personified Jesus Christ, who, of whom it's he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus in, in Proverbs shows up as, as wisdom, and it says concerning the Father and how he created the world, that wisdom was possessed by the Father. That is, there was a fellowship between God and Jesus when they were creating, and it, it mentions that he was daily his delight. That, it, that picture there is, is like a father with a young child that has... You know, that little, that little child is small and he's friendly and he's happy and he's filled with joy. And that is the, the picture that Proverbs provides here. And so Isaac's not, the, not only the only son, but he's also the son who God loves. Not only is Isaac related to Abraham in this special way, but also Isaac's function in this story. Isaac carries the wood on his back in Genesis 22, verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac's, Isaac, his son. In John 19, 17, we see in like manner that Jesus, therefore, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. That is, just as Isaac, just as the wood was placed on Isaac, so also did Jesus carry the cross. The most concrete example or pointer that that Isaac is like Christ is that Isaac was following in the footsteps of his father. What I mean by that is Isaac is a righteous son, and because Isaac is a righteous son, he sees what his father is doing. And his father goes up to worship, and he goes along with him. He was concerned about worshiping in the right way. And what I mean by that is that in Genesis 22, 7, it says, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac was concerned that, they, that Abraham and, and he were going to worship according to the pattern that God had commanded for, for an offering to take place. Isaac wasn't in on what was happening fully. Although he did know that they were going to worship, Isaac was concerned that they didn't have an offering that was going to be suitable. And so Isaac is concerned about the heart of God in the midst of this situation. You can almost hear the joy in Isaac's voice in Genesis 22, 7, when he says, my father. When we read the scriptures, we often read very boring and we just, we just say, my father. But it's, it was more like my, you know, it was more like my father. He, Isaac, in that moment, you can almost, if this isn't reading into the story too much, you can read in that moment that Isaac, with joy, wanted to go and worship. And so he was totally consumed with, with 
worshiping Yahweh in the right way. Isaac was concerned about worshiping according to God's prescribed pattern, and this is just a foreshadowing of Jesus and the relationship that he had with his father. In John 5, 19, it says, truly, truly, or Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. When Jesus was going to the cross, he saw that his father was moving toward the time in which he was going to redeem mankind. And Jesus did not do something that his father wasn't doing. Jesus didn't go to the cross and his father, you know, was totally absent from the picture. No, rather the father was preparing to put the wrath on his son and Jesus got in place in time. He was following his father in his father's footsteps and hopefully by now in this series, you're seeing how these little elements of the, that, are, that come up in the Old Testament are bringing out elements that you've never seen in, in the new. So if Isaac's a type of Christ, why wasn't he sacrificed? This is probably, if you, if you talk to an unbeliever or somebody who's just exploring the faith, they, they might say, well, you know, God in the Old Testament seemed kind of weird. He was into like, you know, destroying things and in the New Testament, he's better. It's actually the case that God likes destroying stuff in the New Testament just as much as he did in the Old. And what I mean by that is that uh, unrepentant, evil nations will, you know, will face judgment by, by the Lord, but God doesn't want to bring them to judgment. It actually says in Second Peter, God's unwilling that any should perish, but we know that people are perishing. And so there's, there, is, there is some sort of problem, and that problem's called sin, and we looked last week at how that problem of sin had gone throughout the whole earth. We, we looked in the story of Noah before the flood. We, we highlighted that violence had spread everywhere. And we, we, we mentioned um, how in, in Sunday school, we might see those pictures where it's like a little felt board. And the story just picks up with God talking to Noah. And he says to Noah, you know, call the animals onto the boat. And there's no context for why there's going to be a flood. And it's actually the case that there's a really important context why there's going to be a flood. God had had a contention with man. He had a dispute with the way that things were going on the earth. And in that dispute, God wanted to bring righteous and vindicating judgment. Violence had spread everywhere. It said in Genesis uh, seven, man's, uh, six and seven, man's thoughts were continually filled with evil. They were premeditating murder and premeditating violence. And God hated that. And in that, he wanted to put a stop to it. But in a poetic way, there is one planned murder that God really does approve of. And that planned murder that God approves of is the eternal covenant which in that eternal covenant, he has established that his son would receive payment, would receive the payment of our sins. That is, God had planned from before the foundations of the world to redeem us, as Ephesians 1 teaches us, through the blood of his son. And so God really has a contention with the planned murders of man, but in the same way, he did plan a murder, and that is the murder of Jesus Christ. Just as we saw that last week, so that same poetic type and anti-type comes up. The reason Isaac is not sacrificed is God hates human sacrifice. The nations of the earth that go on 
in human sacrifice are eventually removed either through God's direct removal of them or through economic and financial and, and societal judgments. And those tribes and or nations that do that, they will not last. That Jesus as reigning on his throne, he puts them to an end. And Israel actually was told to remove certain tribes out of the, the land of Canaan. And the reason why is that the, God had said to them that their iniquity was full. That is, they had been moving into Baal worship and the worship of a God named Moloch. And Moloch was a God who was basically this statue. And what they would do is they would put fire in Moloch's hands and Moloch's hands were made out of bronze. And so there's this big statue and Moloch was this little deity that they had made out of bronze or, or metal or whatever, you know, they, they kind of formed this God and then they would put these ashes or coals in Moloch's hands. And when Moloch's hands were red hot, they would then take their children and place them in Moloch's hands, offering up their children as a sacrifice to this God Moloch. And Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, had an extreme problem with this because he created man in his image. And because of that, God used Israel to remove those evil nations out of the land of Canaan. And that removal of those nations is a righteous removal. And so God has a contention with human sacrifice. He didn't want Isaac to be sacrificed. Rather, it's clear from the story in Genesis 22 that God is testing Abraham, not tempting, but testing Abraham to see if he would offer up his son Isaac. That is, if he would trust God with the promises that God has declared. And so God actually has a contention with human sacrifice, but not all human sacrifice. In a very poetic way, God really does like human sacrifice, but there's only one that's valid. And that is the offering up of Jesus Christ that he made when it says that through the spirit, he offered himself up a sacrifice once for sinners. And that language comes from Hebrews 10. If you want to if you're a little bit wondering why I'm using the term that Jesus was a human sacrifice, he was the only human sacrifice that's valid. And then finally, we turn in this story to, to the, the mountain and the, and the lamb. There's this beautiful parallel in the entire story. Abraham and Isaac, they both went up to a mountain. In Genesis 22, 3, it says that they traveled on a donkey it doesn't say that Isaac traveled on the donkey necessarily, but it does mention that Abraham saddled his donkey and he wouldn't have saddled it if it was just going to carry um, packages. He would have just put the packages on there. He wouldn't have put a saddle on there. So one of them, maybe Isaac, rode on the donkey. In Genesis 22, 5, it says that they left those who were with them and they moved on and they went up that mountain. Isaac carried the wood on his back, as we've already noticed. In the same way, Christ walked up the hill of Golgotha, that is the place of a skull. He entered Jerusalem in John 12 by a donkey. And that is, that, that when you see in the New Testament, things like Jesus riding on a donkey and you say, maybe you don't even ask yourself the question, but eventually, as you continue to read the Bible, you'll ask yourself the question, why is he riding on a donkey? Well, it's actually the case that it's intent biblical purpose. The Holy Spirit has orchestrated events on the earth and inspired human authors to record true things that happened. And God has used literary devices to explain his purposes. And so when Jesus is riding on a donkey, 
It's making use of prophecy after prophecy and story after story that took place beforehand. Not only did he ride on a donkey, but he also suffered outside the gate, away from those who were with him. The disciples had all scattered and left, and Jesus was alone. In Hebrews 13, 12, it says that he suffered outside the gate. Not only that, but Christ also carried the cross himself. No one, no one took Christ's place on that, on that sacrifice. No one took his place in in the way that he went. Yes, he had help from uh, uh, Simon the Cyrene, but he alone was the only one who could have been on that cross for you and me. Not only is the mountain the place that they went significant, as we'll see when we get to Moses, we've seen the mountain show up in, in the garden, and we've seen it show up in Noah when they're on the mountain after the flood, and we see it here. It's going to show up again and again. And there's a reason why, but not only is the mountain significant, but also the lamb is significant. In Genesis 22, verse 8, in the King James Version, I believe this is a a better translation than the New American Standard. The Hebrew is actually very beautiful here. It says, and Abraham said, my God, or sorry, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went together, both, both of them. Um, it is not my opinion that that is mere poetry. In my opinion, Moses, who wrote Genesis, wrote prophetically in that moment and said that God will provide himself as a lamb. In Genesis twenty-two fourteen, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Not only is the lamb significant in how it was provided, but it's extremely beautiful in the way that this lamb is found. In Genesis 22:13, the first half of it, it says, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. In the Old Testament, uh, by his horns, sorry. In the Old Testament, the idea of a horn is, it's, it's a Hebrew concept, and it basically means authority. It's kind of related to a crown or something that you put on your head. It's why that the in the New Testament, their culture, men didn't pray with hats on, but women did have hair coverings or head coverings. Um, and the, it's just, it, without going into it too much, it basically represents your authority. People who have authority usually wear some sort of hat, a um a dean at a college will sometimes wear this special pointy uh, pop, uh, bishop's hat, or not bishop's hat, but a, <clears throat> a um, uh, not a pauper, but a kind of a, 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 the hat of what might be called a dauphine. Um, it's this little octagonal hat, and it's kind of funny looking. Um, police wear hats. Kings wear crowns. This idea of, of, in the Old Testament of a horn, it's the authority that goes with that, that function or that person. And so Christ had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. And this reminds us explicitly of the thicket that the ram was caught in. But not only that, the ram was caught and unable to move. In the same way, Jesus was handed over fully to Pilate's control. That is, in John nineteen eleven, Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me except that my father gave it to you. 
And so this, this lamb that is caught by, by, by his, his horns, this speaks of Christ being given over, the authority over Christ was handed over to Pilate so that he would be crucified. And then finally, the lamb as a substitution. This is the heart of the Christian faith. If you understand this, you understand the gospel. If you don't understand this, you don't understand the gospel. Genesis 22, 13, second half. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. For those who believe in Christ Jesus, he has died on your behalf in the place where you were supposed to die, taking on the penalty for your sins and in exchange, allowing the righteousness that he earned by walking before God in a perfect and holy way to be on your account. That is, substitutionary atonement is the heart of the Christian faith. And, and it's vital that you understand this because if you do understand this, this becomes a source of fuel for the love of the Lord and devotion and also assurance and security in knowing that you do faithfully put your trust in Christ. That is, if you, if you get this, and are living according to the way the Bible says those who accurately believe uh, live, then, then this becomes beautiful. When you can start to see Christ's work on the cross and you know by faith that that work is my, is my work, that work that he did on the cross counts in my place, that's when you've entered into the gospel. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we ask you that we would understand the beauty of, of the gospel that Paul said was preached to Abraham beforehand. God, we ask you that you would convince us of the goodness that you wish to bring to the earth. And we ask you that you would help us understand the beauty that takes place when we begin to see little elements of your eternal covenant in all areas of the scriptures. God, we ask you that you would make clear to us the things that we're lacking in our faith, that you would open our eyes to beautiful and wondrous things, that we would wholly complete your law through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would live by faith and that we would live by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.